Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It's Friday, August, something or other. I've done so many interviews today. I just refuse to say what the date is. You can figure it out. I'm superstitious. You've already heard me say this three times. I'm just not going to say the date. Okay. Anyway, uh, headline uh, story. I just keep reading the same headline, man. I love this. Fielding a dream. My beloved White Sox defeated the New York Yankees yesterday, the Field of Dream game. On a walk-off, two-run, ninth-inning homer by Timmy Anderson. I will now do the play-by-play. Here's the curveball. Slug out. Home run. Yankees lose. Yankees lose. There's a reason I'm emphasizing. Yankees lose. There's a reason I'm doing that because my next guest is fuming right now. I could see steam coming out of his ears. He's a lifelong New York Yankee fan, folks. And as such, while I was cheering, he was crying, sobbing last night as Timmy Anderson ran around the bases going, yay, White Sox. Anyway, without further ado, I'll ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. Take it away, distinguished guest. Thanks, Ben. My name is Chris Buddy. I am a filmmaker and brand storyteller living in Chicago, originally from Connecticut, so right in the shadows of the Bronx, lifelong Yankees fan, as you mentioned. Awesome game last night. Um, Also a big Field of Dreams fan, obviously. So I love the beginning. I love Costner. I love the setting and the game. It's probably the best game I've seen in years. What a wild ride the last few innings. I mean, I thought we were up. I thought we had it. And then the bomb at the end, right dead dead center, which maybe that's a short field. I don't know. Maybe it's, uh, what, 400 to the corn? But got him. Typical Yankee fan already undercutting. <laughs> I know oh, it's a short field, Ben. Uh, <laughs> I didn't hear you saying that when Aaron yeah, Judge no, two run homers. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, the, the the homer in the top nine was probably just barely over as well. I thought he caught it actually in the in top nine. Uh, and of course, yes, uh, as Chris is saying, the White Sox went into the ninth inning, winning by three runs, seven to four. They gave up two two run homers uh, in the top of the ninth. They were losing eight to seven. It looked gloom and doom, and it was gonna. 
Oh, I was all today. The interview, I'd be sobbing and uh, <laughs> Chris would be smiling. But instead, it's the other way around. Thanks to Tim Anderson, the great short software. Uh, White Sox. All right. Uh, let's get down great to game, what, great game. Great game. Uh, as he said, he's a filmmaker, Chris Buddy. Uh, he's a film expert. He loves movies. He's right up there where uh, our Sergio. I uh, got to think Sergio Mims, probably the smartest man when it comes to movies in the city of Chicago. Uh, Chris Buddy knows his stuff too. And we share an obsession. And this is so, I'm going to apologize for the show before we do this. <clears throat> uh, this is the utter epitome of absorption of love for one particular filmmaker who I'm not quite sure deserves or warrants the love we're about to give him. And that would be QT, Quentin Tarantino. Uh, his book, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, came out. It is a novelization of the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And Chris Buddy came on the show with Sergio to talk about uh, the, the movie when it came out in August of 2019. Two years ago, Chris Buddy, uh, you came on and talked about it. And, um, and when the book came out, Chris sent me a test. Come on. Let's read the book and let's do a, a talk about the book and talk about the movie. And I doubled down on him, ladies and gentlemen, the next day. I had a picture of myself holding up the book. I went out and bought it the next day. And Chris was like, eh, hebba, hebba, I'm uh, on vacation. I can't get it now. <laughs> so it took him a while to get the book. And then it took him a while to read the book. But uh, we're ready to go. We're going to take the deep dive. All right. Now, I told you I was going to ask you this question before we take the deep dive. I'm thinking a lot about this myself. Uh, a dear friend of the show and a frequent guest, uh, Ramon Hussein, comes on. Uh, roughly every other uh, rough every other Friday and makes fun of me for my love for Quentin Tarantino. Uh, she does not hold him nearly in the high esteem I do. Uh, and I've been thinking about this, uh, Chris. I have this feeling, this back of my mind, that a time will come that I will be embarrassed that I have been such a fan of s selected movies of his, not every single one, uh, and that uh, I will say, oh my God, I didn't really like him, or I'll try to blame it on Chris Buddy somehow or other. I don't know how I could do that, but I'll figure out a way. Uh, do you ever have that sense that either times will change and you'll see the world differently so that you will dislike uh, Quentin Tarantino or that he it'll come out, emerge, that he did something really embarrassing uh, that discredits him, much like, I don't know, Roman Polanski is sort of been discredited by his behavior or Woody Allen. Uh, do you have that, uh, that notion somewhere in the back of your head? I don't, I, not at all. I don't, I mean, it, well, it's two questions, right? Does, is this catalog of films going to last forever? And they will because there's just rock solid. Again, I don't like every single one. And I think you and I differ on some actually. Um, but I think with Quentin Tarantino, he's like a weird dude. It's within the realm of possibility that he does something eventually. Um, <laughs> to to like sully his reputation as a, but I don't know I don't I think his films stand as some of the best of the era I mean going back to the mid nineties right to to now who who else has made so many good films and if you want to consider this which I don't really but so many um, financially successful movies as well I mean the guy can do whatever he wants and he does he gets whatever he writes a script he casts it he shoots it he's got the best talent with him with Bob Richardson, the cinematographer, and he gets the best actors, obviously with Leo and, and Brad Pitt and whoever else. But uh, I think uh, I don't think you and I or, or anyone should be embarrassed of Tarantino. I think he's going to be like a John Houston or like anyone like that. I think we're going to look back and be like Tarantino, the man. I, I, I could I wouldn't be surprised if one day I'll just say it, I, I'm embarrassed by him uh, at the moment, though. 
my love for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is sort of like my love for the Beatles. It grows a little bit more every year. <laughs> and I've been wondering why it is. What is it about this movie uh, that I like so much? Uh, and I believe for me, it's it's almost it's personal in some ways because uh, of my age. I came of age in the 60s when a real life movie stars like the one that Brad Pitt and Leo DiCaprio play uh, in the movie were a thing. They were just like part of like Lee Marvin or Clint Eastwood or Burt Reynolds or just mm-hmm. like the great uh, male mm-hmm. macho actors of their time. And that's kind of a, a he was he's paying um, homage to them in a weird way. And uh, so this young kid in me is is a. Uh, it's just re- reminiscing uh, to a degree. That's, I think, at the core of it, uh, other, you know, that I think why I'm so attracted to this. What is it about the movie and uh, now the book, uh, Chris, that y- attracts you to it? Sure. Uh, a little different. I mean, obviously, uh, the era, I'm a little younger than you are, so I didn't know that then. But any film fan, right, like reveres the late 60s of that crazy shift. And that's like the era he's dealing in. He took a very interesting take on it and he's like kind of talking about the rel- the leftover relic actor is he going to make it into this like hippie era or not even hippie right like the author uh, era that happened kind of as the easy rider obviously was the first film that like kick-started this and roger corman you could even going back like low budget indies and these kind of really slick young filmmakers who are kind of bucking the studio system and doing their own thing and kind of had their own voice and made like probably the i mean you could look back at the late 60s and early 70s and this is a whole other show, but you could argue that's probably the best era of filmmaking ever. Like the movies that came out of there are untouchable. So that's the era, that's the era he's dealing in. He's kind of dealing with the whole 60s vibe, the music that was changing, Laurel Canyon, whatever Canyon, um, you know, Spawn Ranch. It's all awesome. And like Manson, you know, you know, you, you could get into so many conversations. You have like what killed the 60s? Is it like, you know, all this stuff, Altamont, Charlie Manson and whatever. So that setting automatically for me is like, I'm, I'm, I'm all in, right? Like any tidbit of information I get up, whether it's a book, uh, I know you and I read also that book is uh, about Polanski and about Bob Evans and about, it was like kind of that shift too, which I think is almost a nice companion piece to this. I forget the name right now. Um, the making but yeah, the simple answer. Family. Sorry that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That era um, for any film fan is like huge because because of like all the things that were changing and like everything was on fire, Vietnam. I mean, it's crazy, right? Every it's very, I didn't live through it, but as a, as a fan of history and as a fan of movies, it's like obviously one of the most fascinating eras to, well, to examine. The first time we had the conversation about the movie, uh, Sergio and I were uh, in love, utterly in love with it without uh, has a reservation of all. You, on the other hand, uh, had reservations. Uh, you were a bit of the Debbie Downer in the room. And sure. uh, <laughs> so what has changed? You had an original reservation, as I recall, about the ending. Sure. Change. Talk about that. So we're, we're going right in, right? I mean, if you haven't seen the film by now, right, forget it. Two years old. You have to, you know, so <laughs> major spoiler. So shut, shut shut down if you haven't seen it. But my reservation was I did, I was worried in a way or not worried. I was uh, uh, bucking up against the idea that is Quentin Tarantino, Tarantino becoming this kind of like trick ending guy where you kill, you know, rewriting uh, uh, history to kind of like have this little gimmicky thing. He did it with um, Inglorious Bastards, where they kill uh, Hitler, obviously, and then here in this one, they do—you know—they turn the, the the Charlie Manson killing of Sharon Tate 
and her friend Jay Sebring and, and the Folgers, Folgers uh, heiress, which happened when, when his uh, disciples slaughtered them on Cielo Drive. And so my whole reservation was I was barreling down with this awesome movie towards this end with the date getting closer and closer, thinking, oh, my God, am I going to have to watch a nine-month-old pregnant woman get slaughtered on film? I mean, I just don't know if I can do it. And, of course, he turns it on his head where they go to the wrong house, and then they beat the hell out of the the uh, uh, the disciples of the Manson family. So I was just wondering, like, is that – is it gimmicky? Is it, it – you know, but then when I started watching it more and more, I realized, like – and I think in our conversation, actually, with you and Sergio – I realized like what a pivotal moment in the sixties was. Right. So I almost like this ending. I think my biggest problem was already having seen the inglorious bastards ending. If I had never seen that, I would have taken this more at face value because I think that this turning this ending on its head is much more interesting than killing Hitler because it's saying like, this was a major moment when this kind of Zen sixties, I mean, life went on obviously, but like the idyllic picture they painted of like living, you know, for certain people, right? For like famous actors. So like, I don't know if we can weep from too much, but like it really rocked a whole community and like people who were working in the industry. Um, and so like, had that not happened, what, you know, that's a more interesting conversation to me now than I think my initial reaction. So I think I actually like this ending more than the inglorious bastards turn, if that makes sense. And so also, and I admitted this on the day that we first talked about it, the ending is awesome, right? Like the actual ending, whether you like the fact that he did it or not is one thing. And I'm, and I've totally come around. So I'm here to recant. I'm here to say that I was wrong in my initial, um, assessment of the end. So, but the, it was with Brad Pitt tripping on acid and the way that they bash those guys to death and like they curb the one and then he's outside with the, I mean, it's amazing, right? It's the just dog, a, don't forget well, the dog. well, the dog and the and, and and the carnage and the music and like you know everything about it is awesome. I never argue that fact. I think it was just like, yeah, is that what he's doing now? Is this like, but whatever. I take it back. It's awesome. The movie's awesome. Yeah, I uh, well, I'm glad to hear you take it back. It's it uh, when I see that I've seen the movie now several times. Uh, I think five times. I'm embarrassed to say. And the other day I was like I put that. it on. Uh, one of my daughters was in town. And she, she hadn't seen it or no, her friend hadn't seen it. So I said, oh, I'm going to put it on for them. And they got bored with it. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, well, you know, whatever. It, different. It, I, it's more and more obvious to me that it's a, it's a guy movie. And it's, let's be honest. Uh, and so they left. And so I, I said, well, I'll watch it. And so I watched it was like up to two in the morning. <laughs> I watched it again. And um, yes. Uh, so when I watch it again, when I just boil it down and this may be the same with you, a couple things happen. Number one, when you see a movie over and over again, there's a chance that you'll pick up things that you hadn't noticed before. Oh my God, I didn't think of that. Uh, and then there's the appreciation of certain scenes and the indifference to other scenes. So like some of the scenes in the movie, are like, all right, let's hurry up and get this over with. But like that, the mm -hmm. scene with Brian Pitt, uh, Br Brian Pitt, Brad Pitt at the ranch, uh, where, oh, yeah. he, where he, um, uh, goes and he uh, he he ends up uh, beating up the the Mansonite uh, and meeting Bruce Dern. It's an unbe unbelievable scene. It's like paying tribute to every great Western uh, that has ever been made. It just uh, and then of course the clothing closing scene, which is brilliant. Uh, so I I feel as though um, that the closing scene is even stronger now in my mind uh, than it. Uh, was and when when you go back and watch it again, what are the scenes that uh, resonate most for you? 
Yeah, the ones you mentioned. I mean, what resonates, I'll get to a scene, but what resonates most to me, and I think this is the last time I watched it, is uh, I think it's easy to, to kind of not, I don't want to say dismissed, but just to say, Leo's awesome. He's going to deliver an amazing role. But when you go back and watch that movie, and not to like just detract too much, but also Wolf of Wall Street, whether that movie's good, you know, whether you love it or not, he's so amazing in both those movies. It's like, I mean, how he didn't win for either of those or both of those and the revenant of all things, which is still good, but like maybe like a, an excuse, like a, an apology award for us messing up and not giving you the other ones. Um, he's so good. It's incredible. And I will, this is super weird. And this is like getting really deep into the movie, but my favorite scene now, because <laughs> I went back and watched it after reading the book, just because I was, you know, it was bubbling around in my head and I was so fascinated to go back and see this is, uh, it's not a scene so much, but it's like the mood. It's like, it's, it's when, um, I think it's actually culminating. It's when he, uh, uh, Leo is just wrapped his set on Lancer or, uh, you know, he's playing the bad guy on the, on the, on the, uh, Lancer show, right? She's leaving the theater, uh, Sharon Tate. Um, and they're about to go watch his FBI show. And it's just like this sunset, LA, they're all driving respectively through LA and California dreams, a cover of California dreaming is playing. And it's just like, wow, that's like a cool sixties LA feel. So it's not necessarily a scene, but I think whatever he did there just like makes you feel cool. makes you feel good. And it kind of like get like represents what these people were all living in. If that makes yeah. sense. No, it does make sense. And by the way, that covers by Jose Feliciano. And, uh, I would I would argue very strenuously that it's far superior to the original by the mamas and papas. We could do a whole show. I'll tell you one more. The, the, even superior to that one is, uh, Eddie Hazel, who was the guitarist for Funkadelic did a cover of yes. California dream. And yes. that blows both of them out of the water. Well, Jose's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I throw Bobby Womack in there. So the, the bottom line is the mamas and papas are, are, perhaps the most overrated group in the history of modern pop music. Anyway, oh, I disagree, man. Cre <laughs> Creaky Alley is one of the best songs ever written. <laughs> I thought I could sneak that one past you, but I couldn't. Um, something else I've noticed about uh, the reaction to the movie before we get to the book uh, is that, uh, so QT, Quentin Tarantino, is making the rounds. And I, of course, am listening to a lot of the interviews he does, talk show. It's very interesting. I'll give you a little idea of the Ben Jarofsky show. Uh, we, Quentin Tarantino uh, it didn't come on my show, but I got the next best thing, uh, Chris Buddy, to talk about him. Uh, but uh, so QT's, uh, Quentin Tarantino, he's on. And I noticed it's like so many of the people who appraise his show kind of irritate me because they feel compelled to denounce critics of the show. And they, turn, they politicize Tarantino in a way. I don't think of Quentin Tarantino as a political movie maker. I have no idea what his politics are. I wouldn't be surprised if he voted for Trump. I have no idea who Quentin Tarantino voted for uh, or if he votes at all. Uh, I just don't think of his movies as statements about politics in America. Um, it's hard for me to figure out a political theme that he has. He despises Nazis. That much we know. He despises racists. That's much we know. And he despises hippie murderers that much we know. So what his political attitudes are, I do not know. Uh, but yeah, I know you're ready to step in, but I will tell you this. I was listening to Bill Maher, and he was on Bill Maher's show, and Bill Maher took the opportunity to denounce the woke. Uh, he goes, I can't stand the woke who've criticized you, the you know, woke Americans. And uh, I noticed Quentin Tarantino didn't pick up on that and, and join him in denouncing the woke. Uh, people who who complained that the movie was misogynistic 
or uh, did not give enough uh, speaking time to Sharon Tate, uh, Sharon Tate's character, et cetera. He just kind of ignored that. But I, I feel as though Quentin Tarantino has become some, somehow a symbol of, I'm going to say MAGA, but anti what? People who want to defy conventions of political correctness. What's what's the right way to treat other people? And Bill Maher put him at the top of that list. Your thoughts on how Quentin Tarantino is as a political figure? Yeah, I think I'm I'm I'm, I'm right there with you. But I think he's uh, you know, without getting too political ourselves, right? I think he's very sharp, right? You got to be pretty smart to like put some of these stories together. So I think he's so smart that like. You know, I would argue that someone who isn't very smart or educated tends to knee jerk one way or the other. And I'm guilty of it, too, certainly. But he can, you know, he's of the mind, I think. I don't want to speak for him, but he's of the mind where he can have liberal opinions. And then he can also, if he wants to, back the cops. I think that's what got him in hot water with the woke police, right? He, like, backed the cops at one point when it was it was uh, unfashionable um, to do, you know, to whatever. Um, so I think that's his thing. And I think he's going to say... I don't care what you think about me. I don't care your opinion of me. I'm going to have this opinion over here. I might also side with this. I don't agree with you that he's the MAGA um, poster child. I don't know. I mean, I just haven't seen that. I don't know. I think he's just like a guy who wants to create movies. And I mean, you know, why do why can't you just create a piece of art? Like, why do I have to like tell you what I think of uh, this side or the other thing? I think that might be his. Well, I I didn't uh, if I I didn't mean to suggest that he was the MAGA poster child. Uh, what I noticed is that in the second round of interviews the people i've heard of interview like uh, joe rogan interviewed him bill maher interviewed him and there was a couple other uh, podcasters i heard interview him they accentuated uh the criticism and it's not like the criticism i don't even know what to call it but like let's say women who criticize well, aren't, aren't they saying that like maybe the woke mob can go too far if is that what i think that's kind of what they're saying. yeah that's what they're saying like the woke mob and i, I don't even want to borrow their language because I don't want to reduce to a mob somebody who sure. I disagree with their opinion. You know what I mean? So, for instance, uh, in this yeah, but there's a mob, mob, mob mentality to go after somebody. Be like, you know, like, you know, you try to cancel Tarantino, and I think he's above being canceled. Does that make sense? I think if that's what we're talking about. I think what Bill Maher was saying is, like, they tried to go after you, and you kind of live above it. And so you don't even hear it. You don't regard it, and you just carry on. And I think that's... I think it's admirable yeah. in a way, but that's how he's living his life. Well, no, I, yeah, but the part I didn't like was the part where Bill Maher was trying to cancel the people who disagree with him. See, cancel culture goes oh, both gotcha. ways. Bill oh, yeah, Maher, yeah, no, I got you. I got Bill you. Sorry, Maher reserves the right to say whatever he wants about whoever yeah. <laughs> he's, and then when someone comes back and he goes, "Oh, you're in cancel culture." Well, what sure. the hell, dude? Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> you can't have yeah. it both ways, you know, and so. And I, I give Quintino credit, uh, Quentin Tarantino credit, because oh, we're not Bill, taking the bait. You're saying, yeah, he didn't take the bait. He's like Bill Maher. That's your thing. You. I'm not. I don't have to. That's <laughs> your thing. And Joe Rogan tried the same thing with him, and in, in the, yeah. he had kind of ducked and dodged that one. He's like, I'm not going down that path because I'm not yeah. a political director. And uh, you know, where he's disingenuous, I think uh, Quentin Tarantino, and he 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 suffers here is his connection with Harvey Weinstein. I think we talked about this the last time you were on the show um, where Harvey Weinstein produced uh, his, most of his movies up until the time he was disgraced. I can't remember the last one Harvey Weinstein didn't produce. You would probably know better than I would. Uh, and uh, he talks 
And one of the, I've heard him talk, uh, Quentin Tarantino, about dealing with Harvey Weinstein and having saying, to say no to Harvey Weinstein, how difficult that was on, on issues of the movie. Uh, he was insisting that John Travolta be cast for Pulp Fiction, and Harvey Weinstein was saying, "No, get you can get anyone in Hollywood. Get Sean Penn." And Quentin Tarantino said, "No, I'm going with Travolta." And Weinstein had to back off. I hadn't um, heard that. Yeah. yeah. Well, but then on the other hand, I just think Quentin Tarantino was like a typical Hollywood guy. Look the other way. He knew what was Harvey was up to. Oh, I'm just going to look over here. You'd have to think. Yeah. yeah. You'd have to think. Or I mean, I don't know. I mean, what he said was that everyone knew to some extent that there was like casting couch quote-unquote stuff going on but i don't think anyone knew the full or they're saying they didn't know the full but yeah who knows yeah well now casting couch stuff is uh, no longer acceptable uh, well I, I, hey i wasn't condoling yeah. as, as deplorable to me but i'm just saying that's what they're saying yeah i understand uh so uh anyway so there's the politicization of quentin tarantino that i see going on i give him credit for not res uh for resisting it uh, to a certain degree and not being typecast uh all right so let's get to the book uh i enjoyed the book immensely and i thought it was a great um sort of an add-on to the movie it really it it uh it, the way i looked at it uh chris the book was like a memo that Quentin Tarantino would write to his actors to sort of give them a sense of who their, uh, the backstory of the characters was, what the backstory was to help those actors understand the character they were playing better and so that they were able to flesh it out more. That was my sense of it. And there was a lot of compelling information uh, in this quote-unquote memo, which was a very readable novel. Your thoughts, your general thoughts. Yeah, very compelling. I loved it. I love. I mean, I, I loved certain things more than others, um, which we can get into. But I think it was, it was awesome. I mean, if you're a fan of the movie and you're a fan of that era, he. I mean, I learned things about the like late sixties, like little tidbits. I mean, he dropped. You know, a lot of this is about that like kind of washed. I don't know anything about TV from that era, right? So a lot of it is rooted in that. Um, but I love the book. Uh, what, what, like, what, what were some of your favorite parts? Well, I have to say, um, about that point, this is a little revelation about myself that maybe I shouldn't uh, acknowledge here. Um, so I'm reading a book. Here, I'll show you a copy. Chris can see it because he has a camera. I actually have the book. And I love, by the way, I love that he came out with paperback right away. And it was, quote, unquote, uh, cheap paperback. Uh, That's seven bucks. Yeah, oh, seven bucks. Okay, nine ninety nine. I bought it. Uh, but um, so, for instance, so much uh, of the book, as Chris is saying, uh, talks about uh, directors, obscure directors uh, who did TV shows in the 50s and the 60s. And so, Chris, I'm like, I'm reading this. I'm like, is this guy for real or did Quentin Tarantino make him up? And so I spent a lot of time. This is the acknowledgement going to Google and looking up a director and I read his whole story about how like the guy was born in the 1920s and served in World War II and came out of the war and went to art school and then went to film school. I did the, I did the same exact thing for a period of time and then I had to bail. And the only reason I did it was because there was so much information about, I wasn't sure if these people were real or fake because obviously within the story, there's real references but then there was also fake references of people who end shows that didn't exist. So that's why I did that exercise. I was like, is this for real or is this made up by Tarantino? Like some of the shows that um, Leo's character had been on, like some are real and some are made up. Um, so I found that fascinating. But then I just I had to bail and just keep reading. Yeah. I did. I honestly I did that for the first like 30 pages and then <laughs> yeah. I, I, I couldn't sustain <laughs> 
I, uh, I did it too. That's why, folks, I never get any sleep. Uh, I describe <laughs> my bizarre sleep habits of reading books, and a lot of it is spent looking up uh, the stories and the stories. The other thing uh, that I uh, did not know a lot about, I must confess, I, I've not read a whole lot about uh, Charles Manson. And uh, I, unlike you, was alive when this was going, when it went down, and we're um, significantly older than Chris. And uh, it just was such a horrific crime. I, I just didn't want to confront it. Uh, and um, so the backstory of Charles Manson in and of itself is a mixture of fascinating and revolting. The, the, he was widely accepted uh, by many characters uh, in the rock scene in L.A., and that's kind of why I have a revulsion against the Mamas and Papas and the Beach Boys these days because they're part of that same crew that was really too tolerant. Of well, I think it was mainly Dennis Wilson who was kind of whacked out on drugs, and he kind of fell in with him, so... Yeah, you know. You think I'm being too tough on the mamas and the papas here? <laughs> I'm not like a, I'm not. I didn't come on the show to uh, defend to the mamas and the papas. Mamas I do like it, <laughs> but I will say like they did get they, that backstory of the book was all, like going into the producer Terry Melcher, right, who lived in the house before um, uh, Sharon Tate and and uh, Roman Polanski. That was awesome and kind of like how he. So that is another. I was dying to ask you this because it's kind of back to what we were talking about. Like is a lot of this Tarantino's fantasy or is some of this corroborative because, or corroborative, is, is it proven? Because we know he knew Terry Melcher and, but he does put you inside Charlie Manson's brain to say like, Oh man, maybe this is my last shot for him to listen to my demos. Oh, he moved, but I'm trying to find like, that's obviously why he picked the house uh, where they, where they killed those people because that's the house where the one producer in Hollywood that he had become friendly with lived and then moved but so i wasn't sure if a lot of that stuff because some even some of the um charlie manson family girls that they describe in the book are supposedly composites of a of a couple different ones yes um, they I, did are. Know that, I did look and that's part of what i uh, did the deep dive to uh why, and i was not only looking up uh, uh internet references to obscure 1960s tv directors i was reading up about uh, the Charles Manson and the members of his cult and uh, uh, T Terry Melcher and uh, the Beach Boys and who knew what and when. And uh, the theme that Tarantino presents dealing with Charles Manson, and I'm not sure I buy it, but this is the theme that comes out of the book. He doesn't address it in the movie, but in the book is that Charles Manson wanted to be a rock star. And had he received attention from the rock and roll establishment of Los Angeles, had he got a contract to make a record, he might not have gone down the path he went down. And uh, uh, that, he was still completely insane. Yes. I mean, he had already been a career criminal. Yes. I, 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 I'm not saying I buy the theory that Quentin Tarantino is putting out, but that is the theory that he puts out. Uh, and yeah. he also, uh, he, he does a, a fairly uh, good job, I think, of revealing the, uh, the charismatic powers of Charles Manson and the control that yeah. Charles Manson had over his disciples. Go ahead. Uh, I think, you know, there's something, just getting back to Charlie Manson overall in that part of the 60s, as I understand it, and again, I'm kind of like just looking back and things I've read and, and, and different things I've seen. The late 60s is wild because like, you know, on one end, you can dismiss it as like the flower power hippies, right? And like all that. But there's like a darker like thing that always creeps in. And there's like 
the fascination with the Hell's Angels, people like Charlie Manson, who are also like weirdly, I mean, if you're electric fluid acid test, it, it gets into all that kind of these like suburbanite kids who just became fascinated with like the outlaw bikers. And it's like, you can romanticize it, but then to actually sit with them and be with them sucks, right? It's like the worst. These people are horrible or, you know, can be horrible. Um, so I think that's like Charlie Manson lived in that kind of like part of the sixties where he like got these weird idealistic or kind of lost and idealistic kids under his gaze and his wing and like had weird power over him. And I don't doubt he was like charismatic in a way. Right. He could like BS and talk, but he was also completely insane. It was insane. And, uh, one of the, they, they spin it for humor. Uh, they talk about how Charles Manson, uh, won over the father of one of the, the young women. She was a teenager. Uh, that was in uh, his cult. He won the father over. It was unsettling. And uh, yeah. it was very unsettling, but they, they make like jokes out of it. Like, you're kidding. He got the fucking father to follow him? You know? And yeah. um, Quentin Tarantino has a really strong sense of the absurd. And he played, yes. uh, he played it there uh, very well. I have to ask you about your thoughts. Go ahead. Cut you off. Oh, I was going to say my two favorite parts of the book, which I love, I thought were the best. Cause I'm dying to know what your favorite parts were. My two favorite parts, because I, I got to tell you, like some parts dragged for me. I didn't need to hear like the recreation of the pilot. Like they go. So, you know, there's parts where they go so deep into that. I could have done with that, but there's two scenes that I was riveted. One was Cliff Booth, the Brad Pitt character, character getting back into deeper into his backstory and him as a war hero. And I don't know if you remember that scene, in Cleveland after he comes back from the war yes, where he the takes on two gangsters. I mean, that the fact, I don't know how you would have fit into the movie, but that's like a Tarantino scene. I mean, you know, that was like dripping with Tarantino, everything. And the other one, which also was too, and it wouldn't have made a good part of a movie, but is when after they wrap the pilot, all these actors go to this kind of old school LA bar and they're talking about their careers and other actors walk up and they're kind of like reminiscing on who was a prick actor to work with and who, you know, oh, did you ever like make a pass at such and such actress and this and that Candy Bergman or whatever, uh, Pergen. And uh, I thought that was like perfectly Tarantino, but also just so a well written, but be just like such awesome information. I thought yeah. that was so cool, but I don't think that would have made a good scene in the movie because it's like just people sitting around talking. I don't know when I wa I love that scene immensely. Uh, and I, the Cliff Booth scene that you alluded to with the gangsters in Cleveland was so Tarantino, and I could see it in the awesome. movie. Uh, yeah, it's like and, true romance, right? <laughs> yeah, it was like true romance with these two gangsters and the way uh, Cliff Booth handled it. I don't want to give that away because that that literally, you, even unless you read the book, you won't know about it. Uh, the second scene re, where they're in a bar talking reminded me of scenes in um, Inglorious Bastards that went on for a long time and where mm -hmm. Tarantino, where they were... Uh, uh, the resistance. They went into that bar that uh, in in France. Remember the one, and they just that scene went on forever inside the bar, and then ended up being a shootout uh, in the bar in the basement of the bar, right where he holds up the wrong fingers. Yeah. Yeah. That yes, that's yeah. a great scene. Yeah, it's a great scene. Great it goes on forever. Uh, yeah. The, okay, so this is really geekdom, and I apologize for being such a geek, but so in that scene uh, that Chris just alluded to in the book where the actors retire to this um, actor's bar in Hollywood to drink and reminisce and talk about how great they are. And uh, There's a piano player. Well, they're failures, too. They're failures. They're failures, yeah. They're really revealing. They're getting drunk. Uh, there's a piano player, and he's playing uh, standards and pop songs. Uh, and at one point, the piano player stops playing. 
the piano and he does an exchange with the actors. Uh, with, there's dialogue and uh, the piano player asks for, when he hears who one of them is, he goes, oh, can I have your autograph? Uh, I have a little, uh, my son at home would love you. My like eight-year-old son, Quentin, will love you. And I'm like, wait a minute. Is he just messing with us? Or is his dad a piano player? So I looked it up. I looked that up. That's why I never get to sleep. Chris, at 1.30, I'm looking up Quentin Tarantino. You, know. you need to know. You have to know. His mother, that, that's not his biological father. His mother married a man who was a piano player at this bar. And he put him in the book. And he liked this guy up for... So like, did you catch Ben? Did you catch the other thing when he was uh, so? Uh, for people who remember the movie, there's that young, precocious actress Trudy, right? Is her name? I can't remember if that's yes. her name or if that's her name of in the show. That's her name. So of did you notice that when he says he gives a little flash forward about she says, "Oh, I'm going to win an Oscar one day," and and uh, Leo's character yeah uh, says, "I don't doubt you will," but then it goes on to reveal some of the movies she was on later, and he does say he makes up a Quentin Tarantino movie from 1999 that she gets. Uh, nominated in. Did you notice that part? I noticed that whole thing and I looked it up. Okay, so this is why, again, I stay, I'm up till three in the morning now. Uh, there's a John Sales script, right? John Sales? Yeah. Is she, by the way, okay, so yes, I, everything you're saying, he put in the book uh, and he had her as uh, Timothy, what's t uh, in the movie uh, Ordinary People, the Robert Redford movie? Uh, for I think it's called That's Ordinary. Right, which yeah, uh, he uh, said uh, that uh, Timothy Hutton's Jimmy Hutton, Timothy Hutton's girlfriend. It was her first nomination, so I looked up Ordinary People to see if well, she, she got was... nominated for it. Oh, no, yeah, okay. Quentin Tarantino in his book said that this girl Trudy uh, grew up and became a successful Hollywood actress. And her first Oscar nomination was for the role she played as Timothy Hutton's girlfriend in Ordinary People. So like a dummy at two in the morning, which is why I never get any sleep, I looked up Ordinary People. And what did I discover? <laughs> she, the, woman, the woman who played Timothy Hutton's uh, girlfriend did not repeat, did not get nominated for uh, an, uh, an Oscar. And moreover, her name was not Trudy. In other words, Quentin Tarantino made that up. <laughs> no, but that's the kind of thing that's so neat. That's what I love about it, because there's things happening in the book that are true, right? That are like, oh, weird, obscure, real people. There's things that are made up. And then there's things like that where like, it could be true, because Timothy Hutton was really young when he got nominated for it. And I think he won for Ordinary People, which by the way, is an awesome movie. And there is a girlfriend role in it. But so that's the kind of thing where it's like, oh, that's so close to being spot on that it's realistic, right? Yes. Where it's like, I think he knows his world so well that it's like, that could be 100% accurate. But what I was saying was, did you notice a third example they gave on this Trudy one? He said a Quentin 1999 Quentin yes. Tarantino movie that obviously doesn't exist from a yes. John Sales script. And I don't know why I didn't look it up. I don't know what that's about, but I loved it. <laughs> no, he's just messing with us. QT, yeah. you're just messing with us. And, you know, God bless you. But uh, that's how good the book is, in my humble opinion. Yes. And I believe the book, uh, the New York Times book reviewer was sort of struggling because this is one of those instances where, I forget who it was, I forget was it was a he or she, uh, but whatever, let's just say they, they, um, they clearly liked the book a lot. But they clearly viewed the book as sort of like a trashy thing that owning up to liking would be embarrass embarrassing. So they kind of all over the map with their review. Uh, but the takeaway was when I read it, I was like, oh, you like this book. 
uh, and it further gave me more incentive to read it. I thoroughly enjoyed the book in many ways. Uh, and um, the part that I really enjoyed, I'll just share this with you. Uh, in the movie, it kind of gets lost. But there's a, a conceit throughout the movie where Rick, the Leo DiCaprio character, had a great opportunity in life. And that opportunity was to play the role that Steve McQueen played in The Great Escape, which was a classic World War II movie from the mid-60s that everybody, every uh, man of my generation probably remembers fondly. Uh, and Steve McQueen is the coolest character in the world. The guy in the motorcycle, they put him in the cooler, they put him in uh, solitary confinement, and they can never break him. It's like a quintessential Steve McQueen role. Every kid was on a stingray doing wheelies afterwards, seeing that movie, thinking they were Steve McQueen. Uh, and so what they were saying is that DiCaprio's big break never happened because he never got this movie. And it's a, a conceit that they play upon a lot in the book. And in the end, at that bar scene, they uh, Quentin Tarantino has... Rick, that's his name, the Leo DiCaprio character, explained why he's so offended by the whole story. And he breaks down Hollywood so brilliantly, uh, Chris, and the way actors get assigned roles and why, you know, the, the connection between producers and directors and casting agents. And he, ba yeah, he basically caveats. He said, if, well, if it wasn't this guy, of course, it'll go to the next guy on the list. And he gives a whole story on each one, why it wouldn't be that guy. Okay, fine. Okay, then let's say it comes back to me. And then the punchline is, and then if I'm at the bottom of the list, what do you do? Do you go with the bottom list or do you throw it out and start a new list because you don't want to take the last person? Yes. That's like the ultimate punchline, which yeah. it was awesome. Yeah, so it's great in the movie. And it comes back in the book, I think, three or four times, right? Yeah, he, he in the movie... Uh... It's a couple times, but in the book, he comes back more and more, and it shows how annoyed he is, uh, the, the Leo DiCaprio character. He's so annoyed every time. Oh, wait a minute. Is it true that I heard that you were almost – so wherever he goes, you know, it's sort yeah. of like me and Tiff stories. Wherever I go, hey, you're the guy who writes Tiff stories. People don't want to know anything about me or Tiff's, except you're the guy who writes Tiff stories. I guess there's worse things to be known for. Anyway, I love that. <laughs> I love that refrain. All right, let me hear your thoughts. Don't duck and dodge on Bruce Lee. And speaking of controversies, uh, the Bruce Lee scene, which is just a great scene. Sorry, Bruce Lee fan. It's it is such a great scene. Uh, and the book goes into Bruce Lee a little bit. So your thoughts about was Quentin Tarantino unfair to Bruce Lee? Take it away, Chris, buddy. Oh, wow. That's a tough one to put me on the spot with. I, oof. I don't care. So I'll say, I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'll pick an argument and go with it. I say no. Like, why not? Is it that hard to imagine that two tough guys on a movie set bored in between takes have a little pissing match, right? Of like, see who's tougher. Um, you know, is Bruce Lee, I think is so revered. Can he, like, is it, is it, can we not say that he was also human and wasn't kind of a, a prick sometimes? That's all you have to concede to, to, to like give Tarantino a little bit of slack. I also, don't think that backlash there is even like, I don't know. It just seems like a waste of time. I'm with you there. I, uh, I like the Bruce Lee character in the movie. He talked trash. He was a trash talker. Yeah. And, uh, he underestimated, uh, Brad Pitt's character. And now, and I'll just say this, it was a two out of three fight, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Uh, Bruce Lee won the first one. Cliff Booth won the second one. 
we don't know who won round three because they cut it. That's a good call. So I'm just saying. And okay? you know what they said in the book? In the book, they say that he, what uh, Cliff Booth did was to let him see his first move. Yes. He let him take the first ball yes. and then clocked him. And said, oh, by the way, it's worth mentioning uh, the book because, like, obviously, what will be remembered long after anything is that Brad Pitt won an Academy Award, right, as Cliff Booth. So that's a very big character. The relationship between Leo and Brad Pitt is like, Beyond the movie, it's those two guys, they're iconic actors, whatever. But what's so cool about the book and why I even recommend it after we're kind of divulging a lot of things is they get into the backstory of Cliff Booth, as I already mentioned, but what an ass kicker he is. Like that yeah. guy's backstory of like the things he saw in war and the things he's capable of yeah. are insane. I mean, he's like yeah. probably one of the, and I don't know that they do it justice in the movie. I mean, you see it in that scene and actually in the end scene, what am I talking about? But the fact, like just they, they go into good depth on that guy's, uh, I don't know, physical and uh, whatever, mental fortitude. <laughs> uh, everything. And his love for movies. Uh, they, he's the vehicle through which uh, Quentin Tarantino gets to express his opinions about great directors, great movies. Because Cliff Booth in the Oh, book, I love that. Yeah, I never movie. liked that guy. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah, you know, he's a movie buff. And he goes to see every kind of movie, porno movies, uh, foreign films, comedies. And then he critiques it. And it's like, oh, QT, that's what you think, huh? You know? Uh, no, I, I, um, I got no problem with the, the Bruce and I'm a fan of Bruce Lee. Uh, the reverence for Bruce Lee is, uh, different than the love for Bruce Lee as a action actor. And he was trash talking. He was, uh, and that's just a great scene where, uh, that line, uh, where, uh, Bruce Lee said, these hands are, are dangerous. If I if I used if I killed you with these hands, they could charge me with murder. And <laughs> Brad Pickle, they charge anybody. It's manslaughter. It's a great one. Yeah, it's uh, called manslaughter, Cato. Yeah, it's called. But by the way, uh, Quentin Tarantino uh, doubles down on the Bruce Lee thing in the book, just to let everybody know. So he obviously heard all the criticism that the Bruce Lee fans uh, gave to him and didn't care to a point you were making earlier, Chris, uh, and didn't make any attempt to sugarcoat. Uh, in right. fact, in the book, C Cliff Booth, as you say, is uh, is viewed as tougher adversary um, to Bruce Lee. Um, so, I, uh, I, would, I would say, I think it's worth mentioning real quick. I think it's worth mentioning from the beginning of his career, he's kind of been unapologetic with the language he uses. And the Bruce Lee is just kind of another example of that, right? People saying, well, why... Why do you think you can do this? Why do you think you have the artistic liberty to do this? And his answer is because I'm an artist and I can do whatever I want with my story and my characters. And do I you think buy he's that? Unapologetic in that in that regard. Do, yeah, why not? Do you are you the same way with your movies? <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm gonna. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, Tarantino's a wild dude. You know what I mean? He's like, think about that. Just like the book is another example. Like all the movies he's ever seen, probably more movies than you, me, and Sergio put together, right? And remembers them all. And remembers the second AC on everyone. And remembers the grip on everyone. So he's just got all this crazy stuff. And he's watched black exploitation. He's watched this and watched that. And I think he's just like, movies are movies and I can do it. So I, I, you know what? I do agree with him. Um. I guess I agree with him as well. I don't know. I um, I take it movie <laughs> by movie with Quentin Tarantino, uh, but I thoroughly in, enjoy Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. And I urge everybody, if you like the movie, 
uh, to definitely read the book. And also to the point uh, that Chris made earlier, if you're in to books about this era of Hollywood, where the 60s transitioned to the 70s and the old school transitioned to the new school and drugs took over, and you really should read the book because it's a... Uh, it's right up there with uh, all the others that talk about this transition uh, and how one Hollywood phased it from one to the other. Uh, I think it's really good on that front. All right, what recommendations do you have, Chris Buddy, uh, before we let you get out the door of movies that you've either seen recently or plan to see in the near future? Oh, man. Whew. All right, well, I'll just write the last two movies I watched, I enjoyed. One was this Val Kilmer documentary called Val on Amazon Prime. I was, I like Val Kilmer. Actually, I really like Val Kilmer. I like his movies. I like a lot of it. I mean, not his big blockbusters, but I, he's awesome. He made a really personal, touching, awesome movie. And then he's also got the footage to back it up. He had a, he had a, whatever, I don't even know what the cameras were, like VHS cameras back in the 80s. He has young Sean Penn, Tom Cruise, obviously, from the set of Top Gun young everybody I mean, all, from all these movies he got behind the scene and it, it's worth the price of admission because of him and marlon brando did you see it on the yes. set of uh the island of dr moreau which is another like famous disaster of a movie there's actually a documentary about that i think it's called lost souls about the, the original director got kicked out they brought in john frankenheimer but there's actual footage of him and john frankenheimer getting into an argument on set which is i love stuff like that i love behind the scenes movie making stuff and then you got the uh, huge overweight uh brando sitting in a hammock and the only thing he says is give give me a shove would you kid uh so that was awesome i love the val kilmer documentary and then i just watched uh malice at the palace about the uh the brawl between the pistons and the pacers which is good because it's compelling but it's ultimately not a classic because they kind of set it up unfortunately as there's new footage that's going to change everything, and they didn't deliver on that. But still, a cool movie. And Reggie Jack, uh, excuse me, Reggie Miller, who killed the Knicks all those years, is so awesome, and he's really good in it. Wait, time out. So I've not seen this as a thirty. This is an ESPN uh, documentary. Correct? It's no, it's not. It's a Netflix. It's a totally different thing. Oh, okay. it plays like one though. But it's, it's as good as as any of those. But it's a uh, it's Netflix. All right. Uh, and uh, I remember this uh, to help our listeners out. This was, uh, I want to say, around 2005 or so. Uh, 2004, and, uh, yeah. 2000, wow. Yeah, give me credit for being in the ballpark. Uh, and it was the Pacers were playing the uh, Pistons in Detroit or in suburban Detroit. Uh, and a fight broke out uh, on the floor between uh, Ben Wallace and Ron Artest. Ben Wallace played for the Pistons. Ron Artest played for the Pacers. Uh, and after a uh, piece rained on the court a fan threw water or ice on ron artest and he ran into the stadium to go after the fan and uh his teammates ran uh, in after him to uh protect him or defend him and next thing you know players are throwing punches at fans and fans blown riot well it wasn't really riot i mean riot would you use the no, word people riot? on this yeah you, yeah oh yeah Full, but fans on the on the court fighting on the court, fighting in the stands. I mean, that's yeah, pretty I close to a riot. Yeah, Cops weren't so. anywhere. I mean, it was it's well, it's it's worth seeing, but it's not it's not an all time classic doc. Well, I'll, I um, uh, I will now quote to you a dear friend of mine, an old friend of mine. I haven't seen him in a while, Laveric, uh, who's in my life back in two thousand five. We uh, our kids played basketball together, so we're at the Y, and the the um the the showdown, if you could, I'm not going to call it a riot yet. I'll just say the fight had just occurred the night or a couple nights before. So we're sitting there talking, and I say, 
man, that Ron Artest, that guy is crazy to run in the stands like that. He's crazy. And Leverick looked at me and he goes, he's not so crazy that he went after Ben Wallace. He went after that guy in the stands. I'm like, you have a good point there, Leverick. It was Ben Wallace who got in a Ron Artest's face. Ben Wallace, folks, if you've ever seen him, is chiseled out of stone. He's one of the strongest human beings I've ever seen. Okay, Ron Artest is a big, strong guy, but he's no Ben Wallace. So Ron Artest is like, hmm, Ben Wallace or this chubby guy in the stands? I think I'll take him. <laughs> anyway, that was nice. Lyric's a good man. So those are the two movies that you've seen. I, the Val, I saw very depressing. I thought it was depressing. Sure. Uh, but also know, very well made and very, I, I liked it a lot. I thought it was, there was a lot going on. I liked it. Did you like it ultimately? Or would you recommend yes. it? I would recommend it if you're a movie a fanatic. If you're not a movie fanatic, yeah. uh, like I was watching it in various, uh, my kids and their friends and my wife were passing through and none of them stayed. They took a, like one look, <laughs> one look at it and just uh, walked on. But uh, anyway, I, uh, I, I I watched it at your recommendation. I'm glad I did. Uh, Val, Val Kilmer, what an interesting guy. I would have been easy to sure. write him off as an airhead, but clearly uh, the man was... Uh, Smarter than I ever gave him credit for. Uh, and you're right, vintage footage of Tom Cruise, and Kevin Bacon, uh, yeah, Sean, Sean Penn. Penn. Uh, anything you want to say about your movies before uh, we head out the door? Uh, yeah, if you like Blackjack, that one's still out there, but I think, you know, that's old news now. But yeah, we, we're, we're slowly, quietly working on stuff in our spare time, but that's, uh, you know, which I, we'll, we'll leave it at that, but you know about one of them. That one's uh, taken pretty good shape. Okay, that's the one, and he's just saying, uh, "Mum's the word for the moment." Uh, but this is a good flick, I think, and I'll be looking forward to it when it's out. And we'll have uh, Chris back uh, to talk about Chris, buddy. Uh, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your obsession, your strange obsession that uh, the two of us have for Quentin Tarantino, his book, his movies, and his book. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be talking about the next. Do you think he's going to have another movie coming out? You don't think he's through? Do I think you? He, well, he's definitely got one. He said he's got one last one, but then I think he's walking that back a little, or he's not. I don't know. But he's no matter what, he's definitely got one. I think one last one. All right, good. I look forward to it. All right, uh, Chris, buddy, thank you very much. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.